Chapter 8 of The Story of a Whim by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Like Many Waters. Chapter 8 Sad News from the North. In his own heart life, Christie was changing day by day. The picture of Christ was his constant companion. At first shyly, and then openly, he made a confidant of it. He studied the lines of the face, and fitted them to the lines of the life depicted in the New Testament, and without knowing it, his own face was changing. The lines of recklessness and hardness around his mouth were gone. The dullness of discontent was gone from his eyes. They could light now from within in a flash, with a joy that no discouragement could quench. By common consent Christie's companions respected his new way of life, and perhaps after the first few weeks, if he'd shown a disposition to return to the old way of doing, they might have even attempted to keep him to his new course. They knew their way was a bad way. Each man was glad at heart when Christie made an innovation. They came to the Sunday school and helped, controlling their laughter admirably whenever Uncle Moses prayed. And they listened to Christie's lessons, which, to say the least, were original, with a courteous deference, mingled with a kind of pride that one of their number could do this. They also refrained from urging him to go with them on any more flings. Always he was asked, but in a tone he came to feel meant they didn't expect him to accept, and would perhaps have been disappointed if he had. Once when Christie, not thinking, almost assented to go on an all-day ride with some of them, Mortimer put his hand kindly on Christie's shoulder, and said in a tone Christie had never heard him use before, I wouldn't, Chris. It might be a bore. Christie turned and looked earnestly into his eyes for a minute, then said, Thank you, Mort. As he stood watching them ride away, a sudden instinct made him reach his hand to Mortimer and say, Stay with me this time, old fellow. But the other shook his head, smiling somewhat sadly, Christie thought, and said as he rode off after the others, too late, Chris, it isn't any use. Christie thought about it a good deal that day as he went about his grove without his customary whistle. At night, before he began his evening's reading and writing, he knelt and breathed his first prayer for the soul of another. The winter blossomed into spring, and the soft wind blew the breath of yellow jessamine and bay blossoms from the swamps. Christie's wire fence bloomed out in a mass of Cherokee roses and among the glossy orange leaves many a white starry blossom gleamed, earnest of the golden fruit to come. With his heart throbbing and eyes shining, Christie picked his first orange blossoms, a good handful, and packing them according to the most approved methods for long journeys, sent them to Hazel Winship. Never any oranges, be they numbered by thousands of boxes, could give him the pleasure that those first white waxen blossoms gave as he laid his face gently among them, and breathed a blessing on the one to whom they went, before he packed them tenderly in their box. Christie was deriving daily joy now from Hazel Winship's friendship. Sometimes when he remembered the tender sentences in her letters, his heart fairly stood still with longing that she might know who he was and yet say them to him. Then he would crush this wish down, grind his heel upon it, and tell his better self, that only on condition of never thinking such a thought again would he allow another letter written to her, another thought sent her way, 
Then he remembered the joy she'd already brought into his life and go smiling about his work, singing, He holds the key of all unknown, and I am glad. Hazel Winship spent most of that first summer after her graduation visiting among her college friends at various summer resorts at the seaside or on a mountaintop. But she didn't forget to cheer Christie's lonely summer days, more lonely now because some of his friends had gone north for a while, with bits of letters written from shady nooks on a porch or a lawn or sitting in a hammock. Christie, you're my safety valve, she wrote once. I think you take the place of a diary for me. Most girls use a diary for that. If I was at home with mother, I might use her sometimes, but there are a good many things that if I wrote her she'd worry, and there isn't any need, but I couldn't assure her. So you see, I have to bother you. For instance, there's a young man here. Christy drew his brows together fiercely. This was a new aspect. There were other young men then, of course, and he drew a deep sigh. During the reading of that letter, Christie began to wish there were some way for him to make his real self known to Hazel Winship. He began to see some reasons why what he'd done wasn't just all right. But there was a satisfaction in being the safety valve, and there was delight in their trysting hour when they met before the throne of God. Hazel suggested this when she first tried to help Christie Christward. They kept it up praying for this one and that one and for the Sunday school. Once Christy thought what joy it would be to kneel beside her and hear her voice praying for him. Would he ever hear her voice? The thought almost took his breath away. He hadn't dared think of it again. The summer deepened into autumn. The oranges, a generous number for the first crop, green discs unseen amid their background of green leaves, blushed golden day by day. And then, just as Christie was becoming hopeful about how much he would get for his fruit, a sadness came into his life that shadowed all the sunshine and made the price of oranges seem a very small affair, for Hazel Winship fell ill. At first it didn't seem to be much, a little indisposition, a headache, and loss of appetite. She wrote Christie she didn't feel well and couldn't write a long letter. Then a silence of unusual length came followed by a letter from Ruth Summers, at whose home Hazel was staying when taken ill. It was brief, and hurried and carried with it a hint of anxiety, which, as the days of silence grew into weeks, made Christie's heart heavy. Hazel is very ill indeed, she wrote, but she has worried so that I promised to write and tell you why she didn't answer your letter. The poor fellow comforted himself day after day with the thought that she had thought of him in all her pain and suffering. He wrote to Ruth Summers, asking for news of his dear friend, but whether from anxiety over the sick one, or being busy about other things, or perhaps from indifference, he couldn't tell. No answer came for weeks. During this sad time he ceased to whistle, a sadness deepened in his eyes that told of hidden pain and his cheery ways with the Sunday school were gone. One day, when his heart was especially heavy, and he found the Sabbath school lesson almost an impossibility, the little girl that had spoken to him before touched him gently on the arm. Mr. Christie feel bad? Is somebody you all love sick? The tears almost filled Christie's eyes as he looked at her in surprise and nodded his head. You'm afraid they die? 
Again, Christy nodded. He couldn't speak. Something was choking him. The sympathetic voice of the little girl was breaking down his self-control. The little black fingers touched his hand sorrowfully. In her eyes was a longing to comfort. As she lifted them, first to her beloved superintendent's face, and then to the picture above them. But you all's father's not dead, she pleaded shyly. Christy caught her meaning in a flash, and marveled afterward that a child went so directly to the point, where he, so many years beyond her, missed it. He hadn't learned yet how God has revealed the wise things of this world unto the babes. No, Sylvie, he said quickly, grasping the little timid fingers. My father isn't dead. I'll take my trouble to him. Thank you. The smile that broke over the little girl's face as she said good night was the first ray of the light that began to shine over Christy Bailey's soul as he realized that God was not dead and God was his father. When they were gone, he locked his doors and knelt before his heavenly father, pouring out his anguish, praying for his friends and for himself, yielding up his will and feeling the return of peace and assurance that God does all things well. Again, as he slept, he saw the vision of the Christ bending over him in benediction, and when he awoke, he found himself singing softly. He holds the key of all unknown, and I am glad. He wondered whether it was coincidence, and then knew it wasn't, that Ruth Summer's second letter reached him that day saying that Hazel was at last past all danger and had spoken about Christy Bailey. So she, Ruth, hastened to send the message on, hoping the faraway friend would forgive her for the delay in answering. After that, Christy believed with his whole soul in prayer. He set himself the pleasant task of writing to Hazel all he felt and experienced during her illness and long silence. When she grew well enough to write him again, he might send it. He wasn't sure. One paragraph he allowed himself in which to pour out the pent-up feelings of his heart, but even in this he weighed every word. He began to long to be perfectly true before her and to wish there was a way to tell her all the truth about himself without losing her friendship. This was the paragraph. I didn't know until you were silent how much of my life was bound up with yours. I can never tell you how much I love you, but I can tell God about it, the God you taught me to love. The very next day a note arrived from Ruth Summers saying that Hazel was longing to hear from Florida again and was now permitted to read her own letters. Then with joy he took his letter to the post office and not long after received a little note in Hazel's own familiar hand, closing with the words, Who knows, perhaps you'll be able to tell me all about it some day after all. And Christy, when he read it, held his hand on his heart to quiet the pain and the joy. Have you written to Christy Bailey that you're coming? said Victoria Landis, turning from the window of the drawing-room car, where she was studying the changing landscape, so new and strange to her northern eyes. No, said Hazel, leaning back among her pillows. I thought it would be more fun to surprise her. Besides, I want to see things just exactly as they are as she has described them to me. I don't want her to go and get fussed up to meet me. She wouldn't be natural at all if she did. I'm positive she's shy, and I must take her unawares. After I've put my arms around her neck in regular girl fashion and kissed her cheek, she'll realize that it's just I. 
the one she has written to for a year, and everything will be all right. But if she has a long time to think about it and conjure up all sorts of nonsense about her dress and mine and the differences in our stations, she wouldn't be at all the same Christy. I love her just as she is, and that's the way I mean to see her first. I'm afraid, Hazel, you'll be dreadfully disappointed, said Ruth Summers. Things on paper are never exactly like the real things. Now look out that window. Is this the land of flowers? Look at all that blackened ground where it's been burnt over, and see those ridiculous green tufts sticking up every little way, with an occasional stiff green palm leaf, as if children had stuck crazy old fans in a play garden. You know the real is never as good as the ideal, Hazel. It's a great deal better, said Hazel positively. Those green tufts, as you call them, are young pines. Some day they'll be magnificent. Those little fans are miniature palms. That's the way they grow down here. Christy has told me all about it. It looks exactly to a dot as I expected, and I'm sure Christy will be even better. The two traveling companions looked lovingly at her and remembered how near they came to losing their friend only a little while before. They said no more to dampen her high spirits. This trip was for Hazel, to bring back the roses to her cheeks. And father, mother, brother, and friends were determined to do all they could to make it a success. The morning after they arrived at the hotel, Hazel asked to be taken at once to see Christy. She wanted to go alone. But since that wasn't to be considered in her convalescent state, she consented to take Ruth and Victoria with her. You'll go out in the orange grove and visit with the chickens while I have a little heart-to-heart -heart talk with Christy, won't you, dears? She said, as she gracefully gave up her idea of going alone. The old man who drove the carriage that took them there was exceedingly talkative. Yes, he knew Christy Bailey. Most everybody did. They imparted to him the fact that this visit was to be a surprise party, and arranged with him to leave them for an hour while he went on another errand and returned for them. These matters planned, they settled down to cheerful talk. Victoria Landis on the front seat with the interested driver, who felt exceedingly curious about this party of pretty girls going to visit Christy Bailey thus secretly, began to question him. Is Christy Bailey a very large person? she asked mischievously. Is she as large as I am? You see, we've never seen her. The old man looked at her quizzically. Never seen her? Oh, oh, he said dryly. Wall, yes, for a girl. I should say she was rather big. Yes, I should say she was fully as big as you be, if not bigger. Has she very red hair? went on Victoria. She had a purpose in her mischief. She didn't want Hazel to be disappointed too much. Rather, responded the driver. Then he chuckled unduly, it seemed to Hazel, and added, Rather red. Isn't she at all pretty? asked Ruth Summers, leaning forward with a troubled air, as if to snatch one ray of hope. Purdy, chuckled the driver. Well, no, I shouldn't exactly call her purdy. She's got nice eyes, he added as an afterthought. There, said Hazel, sitting up triumphantly. I knew her eyes were magnificent. Now please don't say any more. The driver turned his twinkly eyes around, stared at Hazel, and then clucked the horse over the deep sandy road. He set them down at Christie's gateway, telling them to knock at the cabin door. They would be sure to be answered by the owner, and he would return within the hour. Then he drove his horse reluctantly away 
turning his head back as far as he could see, hoping Christy would come to the door. He wanted to see what happened, for half a mile down the road he laughed to the blackjacks and occasionally exclaimed, No, she ain't just to say, purty, but she's good. I might have told him she was good. This was the driver's tribute to Christy. End of chapter 8